0: Mentioned last night, after the Buddha's realization of the truth, he enjoyed the bliss of it for seven weeks, and then he decided, after some reflection, that he would teach his understanding to those who he hoped might understand. And the first discourse that he gave was to five ascetics who had practiced with him for some number of years, I believe. And I think one of them got fully enlightened just listening to that discourse. I'm not sure anybody here did last night, but that's okay. I'm still optimistic. I'll give this... The second discourse that the Buddha gave the other four got enlightened, so maybe there's something to it. So listen carefully.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> this discourse is a discourse on the anatta. It's the anatta lakana sutta, and it is the discourse on the anatta characteristic. The anatta characteristic has often been translated as selflessness. Kind of a scary, uh, indecipherable, uh, incomprehensible term. But it refers to the ephemeral nature of experience, the evanescent, the insubstantial, the impermanent, the conditional nature of all of our experience. It refers to the lack of, or the absence of, a substantial, enduring entity within this mind-body process to whom experience is happening. It is a very subtle understanding. It's easily misunderstood. It's difficult to confirm confidently in your practice. But it is important to begin to see the operation of this wrong view of self. It's important to see, begin to see the operation of this wrong view of self in our life. How we create a sense of self, solidify it, get attached to it, and ultimately suffer with it, or because of it. And it's the suffering because of that identification and that attachment that is unnecessary. It's painful. It it torments us in subtle and very obvious and gross ways. Mindfulness the mindfulness practice that we're doing here, just paying attention to momentary experience, is the solvent of the glue of self. The experiences that we have, we glue them all together into a sense of self, me. And that self feels very solid, very real, very fixed, very indestructible in some sense. Mindfulness slowly, gradually, gently, for the most part, dissolves that sense of self, the solidity of it. Last night I gave a a talk on the Four Noble Truths. And when I was speaking about the Third Noble Truth, the cessation of suffering, the cessation of dukkha, the experience of the unconditioned, the experience of nibbana, if you will. I said, the unconditioned can be realized, but there is no one who realizes it. You, personally, cannot experience the unconditioned, but the unconditioned can be realized by you. Tonight I want to try to explain that. We are attached to a sense of self. We believe that we are someone solid, fixed, and as a result of that belief, we proliferate innumerable problems for ourselves. Who were we in the past? What did we do in the past that we now feel guilty about? What are we going to do in the future? What's going to happen to us when we die? And all of the anxiety, the fear, the guilt, the shame, the humiliation, the unhappiness of our life is a direct result of our attachment to a sense of self. If we can begin to see through this false identification, the insubstantiality of this self, All of that suffering, anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, all of that goes with the dissolution of that attachment to self. The Buddha said, The wrong view of self has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong view which has been the most deceptive, the most deluding belief throughout our entire evolution. How does it work? It's like this: when a scarecrow sees, when a crow sees a scarecrow in the garden, it sees the shape, the clothes, the colors, the, the you know whatever, and it believes that there is a person there. Or hopefully, we be, we we want the crow to believe that, so it won't come eat the garden, and it does, for the most part we do the same thing when we take our vast collection of experiences, glue them all together and say, that's me. Another way of looking at it. You walk into A museum, and on the far wall of the lobby is a huge tapestry. Huge, and you look at that tapestry and you see the scene of, you know, uh, two middle-aged women standing in uh, a dark room by a table that has a bowl of fruit on it, and in the bowl of fruit is a couple of apples, oranges, a banana, and a pear, and you see it. And you say, "Wow, that's a great picture." You know, I, you know, you can really get in there. You can really see and feel what they're feeling, and the fruit looks so real. And okay, you really, you got it. And then you walk closer to that tapestry, and you get so close that you can't see the whole picture anymore. All you can see is the bowl of fruit. You know, you're standing up really close, and all you see is this bowl of fruit, and it's looking really good. And it's it's real. It, it seems very real. And then you get really close, so close that the museum guide comes over and tells you, don't get so close. you know. And you get really close, and you look at the banana. And what do you see? You see all these little threads. And then you pick out some of those threads, and you see that there really is no banana there. And yet this whole picture, two women standing in a room around a table, bowl of fruit, oh so you know, all the emotive relationship to it and everything, is made up of these what we now know to be insubstantial threads. There's no women, there's no fruit, there's no room, there's no picture, there's no emotion, there's nothing. All there is is these little you know, microscopic threads that in and of themselves are meaningless. Our life is just like that. It looks like, from a distance, there's somebody here. And, you know, I have a personal history, and I can describe all kinds of experiences that this being has gone through. But when we look really closely at everything that I have glued together to make myself, what do we find? We find insubstantial, insignificant, impermanent nothings making up every experience that this thing has ever had. And yet, when we glue them all together and we step back and we look at it, we think, oh, there's somebody there. But really, the tapestry of this life of Steve is made up of threads less substantial than that tapestry in the museum. Who is Steve? Where is Steve? Which thread? Which color? Which, you know, is it cotton, wool, linen, or what? Is it blue, yellow, green? Where's the banana? Is it in the cotton thread? Let's do No banana in the cotton thread. Okay. You begin to get the picture? Or you begin to see the (laughs) non-picture? If you will. Now let me step back and say, in our ordinary reality, and this is ordinary reality, it is really important to have a very clear sense of yourself. Who you are, who others are, your boundaries, your responsibilities, your obligations and don't confuse them. You don't want you don't want to be kind of, you know, merging with everybody and everything that you see. You you won't know which emotions are yours. Right? So, you know, it's really clear to have boundaries and to to be very clear what you're, who you are. But that's in the relative world, in a relative sense, in the consensual reality that we all share important to have a sense of self flexible but when we look closely at our intimate experience the deepest most intimate experience that we can point to or get to or be aware of there's no one in there in here there's no enduring entity that is having all these experiences. This entity is nothing but the conjunction of conditions giving rise to experience. And when experience changes, this being changes. There's nothing that doesn't change in it. Okay. The Buddha pointed to five experiences that we all have, that we identify with as who we are. I want to talk about these five and show how we identify with them and how mindfulness practice exposes the lack of a self within it. And the first experience is the continuity of this body. We're born. We have a body. Our parents tell us that. And, you know, they stroke us and they pat us and they feed us and they say, Hi, this is you, you know, Steve. Okay? This is your body. Get used to it. Grow into it. Get identified with it. Learn, hopefully, by the age of three or four to take care of it. Okay. Now, most of us have a very intimate knowledge of our body. We've had some pain in the past. We've had some pleasure in the past. We anticipate the same in the future. And we're pretty identified with it. To give you an example of how identified we can be with it, when the body gets sick, we say, and we think, we feel, I'm sick, I'm unhealthy, I'm and I get unhappy because the body is sick. Or a more socially embarrassing uh, situation. You wake up some morning, and you've got a big zit right here on your nose. And you know you've got to go see you know uh, several business contacts that day, and there's no way to cover it up. Why do we feel... Ashamed, embarrassed, uh, you know, kind of uh, uncomfortable. Because that zit reflects our self. Doesn't that sound stupid? (laughs) Doesn't that sound ridiculous? And yet, every one of us experiences that. And that is identification with your body. And that identification with your body as who you are causes suffering. Doesn't it? You see? Now, we have to take care of our body. That's one of the obligations, one of the uh, Sankara dukkas that we all have to do. We have to feed it and take care of it and keep it healthy and exercise it and, you know, do, do the things that, you know, we have to be reasonable in in caring for the body. But, you know, as we grow older, as most of us here in the room are, um, you know, gravity begins to win, and our attachment to the body, our identification with the body, causes us some uh, discomfort. You know, when we look in the mirror and we see the gray hairs and we see the bags under the eyes, the wrinkles, and this and that, and you know, the the body kind of um, loses its uh, desirable shape, or texture, or form. And so, lucky for Kamala and I, right up uh, one of our neighbors is a personal trainer, has a, a little uh, a club in his garage. So he uh, offered us uh, unlimited, because we need it, uh, <laughs> 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 guidance in uh, reclaiming a body that we'll be proud to have. <laughs> so, so, so I went the first couple of times you know he's he's really he's really gentle he gives you private lessons the first couple of times just so you get over the shock of <laughs> you know, your lack of capacity to do these uh, things and then he put me in the club in, in the class with about a half a dozen other men luckily they're all older than I am and So I go Monday, or I have in the past gone Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, 7 o'clock, I think, in the morning. And uh, here's a half dozen guys, (laughs) you know, (laughs) strutting around and doing their thing, you know, running the machines. And Buzzy's got uh, mirrors, I think, on three walls, you know, and (laughs) it's really interesting. You know, you do your machine then you stand up. (laughs) <laughs> well, Buzzy gives me gives a lot of compliments. He says I, I've got I've got at least uh, legs that are worth eight on a ten point scale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he's got he's got us all pegged. You know, oh that guy's got arms like you know, and he's got a great potential in that that uh, da die whatever. <laughs> What's happening there? <sighs> Uh, we're trying to feel good about that body. <laughs> we're trying to feel good about our identification with the body. And so we are really reinforcing attachment to and identification with the body and trying to keep it in a way that we feel good about. But i tell you something. Time is going to win. <laughs> and no matter what you do, that body is going to go right out from underneath you. And at some point, we have to let go of it. When we do, if we do, when we let go of that identification, when we let go of that identification, we stop suffering. Why wait until you're seconds from death? You know, when you see a newborn baby, or you see someone who is just about to die, it is really clear that they are not their body. It is so obvious they're not their body. We don't even question it. And yet, do we question that we're our body? No we believe it what happens to the body happens to me and we suffer because of it Kamala has given me permission to read this poem it's about women but it applies to men too and it's called Cosmetics Do No Good Cosmetics Do No Good No shadow, rouge, mascara lipstick Nothing helps. However artfully I comb my hair, embellishing my throat and wrists with jewels, it is no use. There is no semblance of the beautiful young girl I was and long for still. My loveliness is past, and no one could be more aware than I am that coquettishness at this age only renders me ridiculous. (laughs) I know it. Nonetheless, I primp myself before the glass like an infatuated schoolgirl, fussing over every detail, practicing whatever subtlety may please him. I cannot help myself. The God of passion, read attachment, has his will of me and I am tossed about between humiliation and desire, rectitude and lust, disintegration and renewal, ruin and salvation. As we practice, we come to a different relationship with our body. We learn to tolerate discomfort. We have those moments, those times when we feel how separate we really are from our body. It comes, you know, it's an insight, you see it. We experience what I call body distortions, very gross body distortions, where you feel tremendously heavy, tremendously light, very large, very small, nothing but vibrating, nothing but light. And we begin to get a vast range of perspectives of what this body really is. It's not just the reflection in the mirror. And each of those insights into the non-ordinary perception of the body weakens our attachment to it. It's important to sit here and watch a body go through its contortions and distortions. Because in that process, we come to know the body as it truly is. And in that, we can let go much easier. We're not just hanging on to the reflection in the mirror. It isn't a matter of belief. Do you believe you're your body or not? It's a matter of practice. You actually have to experience disidentification with the body to be disidentified from the body. Just to say, oh, yeah, I understand that. I'm not identified with my body. Doesn't cut it. You really have to sit there with it and watch your attachment to the body cause you suffering and watch how, when those times come, there is this vast, spacious, expansive disidentification with the body. Then you get it. Okay, the body. The second experience the Buddha pointed to as easy to attach to, identify with, is Through the activity of thinking, we create an identity. And our identity is the cumulative differentness from everyone else. What I have done, behaviorally, appearance, achievements, accomplishments, etc., etc., that is different than all of you. That differentness Is unique to me and that is my identity. Okay. When I was born, I was given the name Steve to distinguish me from my brother Pete. (laughs) And my mom picked me up and she strokes me and she says, Oh Stevie, you're so lovable. You're my son. You're my son. You're so lovely, you're a nice little boy. You know, And she did that for three years, and my dad picked me up once or twice and <laughs> did the same thing. And, and, uh, and, you know, then I went to school, and, uh, well, first my brother Pete said,
1: oh, my brother Pete, Steve.
0: You know, and I uh, went to school, and I was called Steve, and uh, eventually the government got involved, the bank got involved, and everybody got involved. I got a string of numbers, a whole... Uh, bookshelf full of photo albums and newspaper clippings of the roles and relationships I have been in throughout my life. And by repeatedly reflecting on all of that stuff, I continue to reaffirm, I'm Steve. Right? The roles change, relationships change, Unfortunately, the identification remains. And we carry this identification with us through the changing ages of our life. This vast complex intermixing or intermingling of roles in relationship has woven the tapestry on which Steve appears. We've already looked at the tapestry. We know there's nothing there but insubstantial threads, And yet there is an appearance of Steve here. The complexity of that tapestry, of all of those memories, all of those events, all of those experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, roles, relationships, all of that stuff, the complexity of it obscures the fact that it's just an illusion. It's just an illusion. There really is nothing there. Okay. No problem with any of that until and unless we aren't confirmed in our sense of our place in the world. If, you know, you're in a role, you're in a relationship with someone, and they start acting in such a way as to deny your place, or your sense of yourself there. You're in a relationship with a, uh, an intimate other and they start, uh, their heart starts leaving the relationship. Your sense of self suffers. You suffer because you're no longer getting confirmed that we're in this loving relationship we're making a life together and you know we're doing that and the other person is saying I'm out of here where does that leave you? suffering right when we're identified with our roles we're identified with our relationships we suffer Kamala has raised four children And, you know, it's mentioned, you know, the empty nest syndrome. It's real. When your last child leaves home, you're suddenly left with this, uh, Who am I? What am I doing? Uh, You know, I don't have to get anybody off to school today, and uh, I'm not even cleaning up any messes for them. And it's like there's a period of time where your sense of self as mom is not confirmed. And it's, it's, uh, it's not all pleasant. There's a lot of pleasantness to it, you know, when they all leave home, but it's not all pleasant. Okay. What happens if we were to uh, disidentify from our role? Keep the role, but just loosen the attachment to it. I'll give you an example. I lead retreats, travel around quite a bit, I fly on United Airlines, and I'm a frequent flyer. And I'm a premier frequent flyer, because I get a lot of miles. Well you know when you're a premier frequent flyer, and you get all these miles, they like you. United Airlines likes me, and they send me upgrades, for, for upgrades to first class, they give me the choice of the better seats. I can. Uh, do get you know get on earlier? I can pay a lower fare for things. I can use their lounges. It's all, all kinds of good benefits. Well, I take advantage of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a gift, right? So, one time I had to fly from the West Coast to the East Coast, San Francisco to Boston, but come the day of my flight, I actually had to leave earlier than my scheduled flight. And you know, if you try to change your outbound flight, you scrap the whole ticket, you pay a penalty, blah, blah, blah. So I said, I'll fly standby. So I called up the airport. They said, oh, plenty of seats on that plane. No problem. A red eye going out of San Francisco, getting into Boston at 6 o'clock. Great. I'm going to fly standby. Drove down to the airport or got taken to the airport. Got there. Pandemonium. And uh, I went to the counter. I said, um, I'd like to fly San Francisco-Boston. standby, red-eye. I'm sorry. We had to cancel one of our flights. All those passengers are on this flight were way overbooked. There's not a chance. I said, well, just in case. Uh, I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to have any seat that's available. No chance. I said, which gate? They said, up at that gate. So I went up to the gate, pandemonium at the gate. So I went up to the gate person. I said, hey, uh, I'm on standby. Uh, I'm on the list of standby people, and uh, I'd like to fly tonight. Uh, I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many other people want to fly standby? <laughs> oh, there's three of you. And I said, well, are they, pre- are they uh, frequent flyers? <laughs> 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 are they premieres? not? Well, I'd like to be the first one. <laughs> so the time came. They boarded the plane. Oh, just, there's so many people. And they got everybody on the plane. They called the last rows, you know. And then they said to the three of us that were waiting, they said, come on down. Uh, we'll walk down the, um, the, you know, the alleyway there. We'll go to the door of the plane. And when they got everybody set down, we'll see if there are any empty seats. So I said, okay. Uh, I'm the frequent flyer. <laughs> shouldn't I be first? And we got to the door of the plane. They were quickly sitting everybody down. They wanted to get off on time, back out from the gate. Wouldn't you know it? One empty seat. (laughs) I said, okay, you can get on. I said, oh, I was so happy. Thank you. Thank you. I was just ecstatic. I was going to get to... Fly! I didn't have to take a hotel in San Francisco overnight to take my flight the next day. I was going to get there on time. I was ecstatic. Way up back between these two very big football players, <laughs> there was this little tiny space, but I was happy. I was going. And as I was sitting there squeezing into my place, just kind of bubbling over, they found another seat even further back. And they beckoned to the second person that was flying standby. Oh, look, there's a seat for you. So... He went in. They closed the door. They're all ready to back away from the gate. Somebody in first class suddenly decides they're on the wrong plane. They get up. They open the door. They let him out. They beckon to the last person
1: trying to Come on, come on,
0: come on, come on. They bring him on, and here's this guy, dreadlocks, bare feet, good tan, everything he owns in a, ba- a knapsack about this big and they set him in first class.
1: <laughs>
0: I was livid.
1: <laughs>
0: I pushed my button. I, 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 I. <laughs> I'm a frequent flyer. I'm the premier frequent flyer. Shouldn't I have that first class seat? You got your seat. Sit down. We're backing out. <laughs> I was so upset. I spent the first half hour of that flight composing my letter to Premier Desk, telling them how insensitive they were and how badly I'd been treated. And here I was, a respected member of their frequent flyer class. And I was suffering. I was suffering. And then I said, you know what? there's another five and a half hours of this flight. <laughs> do I want to arrive in Boston at six o'clock totally exhausted, drained, and angry? Or do I just want to forget it? And I said, ah, forget it. I'm on the plane. I'm gonna get there in time. What's the problem? So just, just with that, just with that much reflection, let go of my identification with being premier frequent flyer. Okay? Let go. Just let go of it. Stop being identified with it. I stopped suffering. I was happy. That's fine. I was going to get there. What actually happened? Nothing changed. I was still on the plane. I was still a frequent flyer. I still got all my benefits. Everything stayed the same, except I wasn't suffering. When we let go of our identification with our roles and relationships, our responsibilities, the only thing that happens, everything stays the same, we just stop suffering. Why don't we do it more often? Because that identification feels good. That's who I am. I've got something and someone to present to the world, to each other, to the stewardess, to the stewards, to the counter people, me. If letting go of our identification with our roles and relationships does not cause harm to another... Let go. But if you have a relationship, you're in role in relationship to others, and if your letting go causes pain to the other, we have to be careful. We have to be responsible to the commitments we've made and follow through. But much of the time, we can let go or loosen the identification with that role, that relationship. Let it go. Identification with our body. Identification with our roles and relationship, which is really the activity of thinking, thinking mind. The third experience that the Buddha saw that we really identify with is the selectivity of our memory. You know when you meet somebody new for the first time? Oh, who are you? Oh, I'm Steve. I was born, I did this, I went here, I do this, I do this, da-da-da. And we list this whole litany of things we have done memories that we have carefully selected from the whole (laughs) pantheon of memories uh, to present to someone as a definitive who I am now as long as we can preserve and maintain that list of memories and only present them we present a coherent, consistent, you know, and uh, uh, approvable and agreeable, and it's the desirable self that we want to be seen as. Okay. We come to practice, innocent and naive that we are, and we start just paying attention. What happens? Memories emerge into our consciousness, like skeletons out of the closet. And they threaten our sense of who we are. We start to remember the times that we did and said things that were rather shameful. The times that we hurt other people. The times that we misled, deceived, uh, intentionally, unintentionally the times when we were less than who we would like to be. And every time that they come up, we say, oh, stuff that back in the closet. Because it threatens our sense of who we are. It threatens our sense of stability, security, um, uh, authenticity, uh, respectability. And we have all these skeletons that keep coming. Okay, it happens that our sense of ourself is deeply, 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 deeply conditioned by the memories we choose to fixate on. Unremembered by us is a lot of experiences in our past, this life, and previous to that, that have conditioned our sense of self in ways that cause us now to act out painfully. I'll give an example. <clears throat> I was working with a woman in three-month retreat and I was working with her for a couple of years good yogi really good mindfulness very strong equanimity practice in the midst of this equanimity practice there started to arise in her mind unbelievable terror no content fear just tremendous, body was just in terror. And didn't know what was going on. Just trying to be mindful of it, but you know, terror is a hard thing to be mindful of. And slowly, but surely, just kept noting being, 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 these images started to arise in her mind. Images of the most disgusting, gross, abusive uh, behavior. It was terrifying. It's just like, what in the world is going on? And she, uh, you know, along with it comes the emotional tone of that experience. Just humiliation and despair and just depression. Just unbelievably intense, unpleasant physical, mental, and emotional stuff. What was happening? She was recovering her memory of a very, very abusive early, early childhood. She had no memory of it for 35 years. No inkling, not even a clue, nothing. She was a normal housewife. Well, I mean, normal with ordinary problems, but... And then this came up. And it took several years for her to recover the memories and to acknowledge the emotion, acknowledge that that was her then, and to come to a new relationship to that sense of self that was constellated in that abusive relationship. She had to disentangle her identity from that abuse to claim her own life now in the present moment. Our sense of self is so fragile. And all it takes is looking carefully to see that it is a total illusion. There is a truth, there is a reality to this being, but it's not what we think, it's not what we believe, and it's not what we're identified with. This practice exposes the illusion. As long as we can maintain the illusion, we you know we suffer the ordinary things of life. But as we expose the illusion, we go through that suffering. We learn how to let go of our identification with every sense of self that was ever constellated in any unpleasant or pleasant experience, and we see how insubstantial, ephemeral, evanescent, just this self really is. Whatever conditions come together constellates or conditions a sense of self. And when those conditions change that sense of self goes with it. If we can let it. If we can let it. If it's particularly painful Or if it's particularly pleasant, there's often a fixation on it. And then we're stuck with it. Until we can go back, see it again, and consciously let it go. Until and unless we uncover our identifications with a sense of self, we are not free. Not free. We are automatons, acting out of deeply conditioned identity. This woman has recovered, if you will, has seen through this horrific period of her life, has uh, still has the memories, but does not have the identification of self with them, and is you know, now it's been I don't know eight or eight or nine years, probably, and now is living a relatively normal, but a very awakened life. T.S. Eliot understood this process when he wrote, "We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring." will be to arrive where we first started and know the place for the first time. Our practice here is an exploration, a discovery of who we are, who we truly are. Not the illusion, not the appearance, not the hope, but really to see through all illusions of self and come to the sure, confident knowledge that there is no enduring self within. Hmm. So we have identification with the body, obvious suffering, practice dissolves that identification. We have the identification with our roles and relationships. We can see through that, let that go we have a selectivity of our memory which we by which we try to preserve and present the sense of self which is f- very ephemeral the fourth experience that the buddha identified as easy to attach to or identify with is the sense of self which is conditioned by our ability to make decisions or to pick and choose one course of behavior over another. We all chose to come here tonight, right? We chose, we made that decision and we took the necessary steps to follow through with that decision and we are here. It's obvious that there is a cause-effect relationship between that intention and that decision and our being here. And that cause-effect, the obviousness of that cause-effect relationship between the decision and our being here refers to someone who made the decision. Me. For myself. You. For yourself, or it seems to refer to a self. We come to practice, we start paying attention to sitting, walking, breathing, thinking, eating, going to the toilet, getting dressed, and you know, just. The, daily, the, the ordinary, mundane stuff of our life. And the f- one of the first immediate, shocking insights that we all have is I am on automatic pilot most of the time. I don't even know what I'm doing most of the time. We'll find ourselves halfway through a meal before we realize that we are really enjoying what it is we're having. And... I'd be surprised if many of us here in these 6 days have noticed that we even go to the toilet or what that's really like you know the opening of the valve that lets the water go did we did we choose to do that or was that automatic we we find ourselves uh, shifting posture in the middle of sitting without ever it's like, You know, we're scratching and slapping flies, and we... we, It's like, especially moving to get rid of the flies. And we didn't even make the decision to do that. It's just happening automatically, you know. Conditions unfolding. Okay. So we begin to question, uh, who's in control here? Who's running this ship? If I'm not there making these decisions... Who is? So let's look at this. We sit down, and after 20 minutes or 40 minutes, the body begins to get really uncomfortable. Pain arises. And the debate starts. Should I move, or should I endure?
1: Right? And
0: we've all had this debate kind of going on in our mind. And... Fear arises in the mind and it says, if I continue to sit like this, I'm going to hurt the body and I may never walk again.
1: <laughs> right?
0: Determination arises and says, I can do it. I'm a good yogi, I'm going to sit, through it. Right. Aversion arises and says, I hate this pain. i got to move. Compassion arises and says, Oh, be kind to yourself. Relieve your own suffering. Move now. (laughs) (laughs) Doubt arises and says, What in the world am I doing this for? (laughs) Boredom arises and says, I've been here. I've seen this before. Impatience says, How much longer before the end of the city? At some point we move. Which mental state conditioned the intention that conditioned the movement? Was it fear? Was it aversion? Was it desire for more comfort in your sitting? Which mental state conditioned the intention to move? Okay, let's assume it was aversion. Are you aversion? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You're not aversion. Sounds stupid, doesn't it? Sounds ridiculous. You're not aversion. Aversion arises in the mind. It's an impersonal, impermanent state of mind that arises due to its own conditions. It's not you. And yet, aversion conditions the intention to move. So we have to say, aversion made the decision to move.
1: <laughs>
0: you didn't. Right? Look at that. Look, I mean, who, who are you? Which, which, which mental state are you? Which one do you want to get identified with? If you're identified with it, then, of course, it's you. You think it's you. But when you really see that these mental states, they arise and pass away due to their own conditions, their own cause and effect, and they really have nothing to do with you. Can you control your mind and say, okay, aversion, you stay out just sitting. good luck right that's ridiculous you can't do it you know it just it it just comes it's, it's like it's not you you can't control it you can't make it happen you can't make it not happen it arises you can't get rid of it you can't do anything about it it's just happening so who are you? to be so arrogant is to think I made the decision to move or not no you didn't some mental state did. Some impersonal, adventitious mental state that just arose haphazardly and you probably didn't notice it. And it conditioned the intention and you moved. There's no you in there. There's no substantive, enduring, solid you that says, okay, there's some aversion, there's some desire, there's some yeah, I'm going to move. When you look closely, when you really look closely, and this is going on every sitting, when you really look closely, you don't find any person that's making the decisions in your life. You find the unfolding of conditions. So who's making, what's making decisions now? If there's nobody nobody in here, who's making all these decisions? What is making all these decisions? Do you know what? Habit. Our fear of unpleasantness, our desire for pleasantness, and our confusion of everything that's neutral, for the most part. Automatic, reactive tendencies. If something's unpleasant, get away. If something's pleasant, hang on. If something is neutral or is not very distinct, huh? Well, <laughs> is <there> something happening? <laughs> we don't know. Confused by it. It's really interesting sometimes to um, sit down with the understanding that you're not going to move, with the intent not to move, and then watch and see what it is that actually makes you move eventually, because you'll move eventually. You know, it might not be in the 45 minutes, but we won't ring the bell. You know, we'll go an hour, hour and a half, two, three, a day, if you like, whatever, We'll see. Eventually, the body will move. What makes it move? You can have all of the best intentions in the world, and they are impermanent, impersonal, adventitious, due to conditions, and they'll pass away before the sitting ever ends. In this practice, we learn to confront our habits our unconscious reactive habits to avoid the unpleasant to seek the pleasant to be confused or ignorant of the neutral and we cultivate wisdom the wisdom that can be with unpleasant without reacting with aversion that can be with pleasant without unconsciously grabbing on and that can see the very uh, neutral, non-specific, the, the, uh, the bland, if you will, experience and not be confused by it. Because with that understanding, with that ability to not react, emotionally react, we actually have the space of freedom. Then we can actually make a choice. Or I should say, we can't make a choice. Wisdom chooses how to respond to the situation rather than letting ignorance react. And it's wisdom that leads to happiness. And so wisdom always makes the choice. It always chooses to act in such a way, to respond in such a way that it minimizes suffering. That's what wisdom is. Minimize your own and others' suffering. And it's wisdom that makes the choice when mindfulness exposes the gap between the unpleasantness and a reaction or the pleasantness and a reaction. And then we have the choice to feel that unpleasantness and respond with wisdom. To feel that pleasantness and respond with wisdom non-clinging, non-aversion wisdom, non-delusion. Somebody asked me about guilt today. What is guilt? We do something, we feel shameful about it, and we carry that sense of ourself forward into time, into the present moment. Now, I'm feeling guilty. What's actually happening is a reaffirming of that sense of self in the past that felt shameful. And I'm reaffirming it. Every time I feel guilty, every time I remember it, I'm reaffirming, yes, I'm guilty. Yes, 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 yes. I am a guilty self. Guilty, 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 guilty. And pretty soon, I walk around feeling paranoid, you know, that somebody's going to accuse me of what I did. Now, that self that acted unskillfully, shamefully, back then, ceased to exist in that moment. We are only carrying it forward into time in our mind by repetitively rethinking over and over again I said that they did that and then I did that oh my gosh and if we don't remember that we don't feel guilty by seeing the memory as memory by feeling the shame as shame by f- seeing the, vis- the the scenario as seeing or vi- the vision as seeing and by just taking apart that whole feeling of guilt the memory, the vision, the feeling, you just take apart, you pour mindfulness on it, and you dissolve the glue that is gluing it all together. And what do you have? You have a sequence of remembering, seeing, feeling unpleasant, da 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 da. And if every time that comes up you do that, in time, and actually a very short time, you will dissolve that sense and that feeling of being guilty. The memory still arises, but the identification with the self of that memory is let go of. Mindfulness is a tremendously powerful tool. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It can dissolve any identification. Any identification. And with it, any suffering that is attendant with it. Identification with the body, identification with our roles and relationship, the selectivity of our memory, the appearance of being the decision maker, the one who chooses, the one who's in control of this life. The last experience I want to refer to just briefly, not to go on too long, is this sense of self that is conditioned by enjoying what we like and disliking what is unpleasant. We think, we feel pleasant and unpleasant. We taste chocolate, and we say, I like chocolate. What is actually happening there? (laughs) This gets into a little bit of Buddhist psychology, and it's a little bit non-experiential, maybe. We think there's a me in here that is tasting the pleasantness of sugar and chocolate. But actually... When we look closely, it's not me. There's nothing about me that is feeling that. It is in the very nature of tasting, to be pleasant or unpleasant. And we don't control tasting. We don't control hearing. We don't control seeing. It happens. Can you make your tongue not work? Cannot. You put a piece of chocolate on the tongue, it's going to, there's going to be an immediate, pleasant experience. And without awareness, that pleasantness is going to condition liking. And that liking is going to condition a sense of someone liking. And that someone is going to be identified as me. And right there, in that automatic conditioning that will run if there's no mindfulness there is the creation and identification of self. Now what happens when we bring a little mindfulness into the subject, into the picture? Uh, we see the chocolate. Mm-hmm. We reach for the chocolate. Mm-hmm. We open the mouth and put it on the tongue and we note pleasant. We note pleasant again and again and again and again until it's dissolved and gone. The conditioning of pleasant liking I identification doesn't run it gets stopped right there at the pleasant before the liking before that attachment before that clinging and identification with self right there and in that is the creation of the space of freedom when that conditioning does not run automatically then we're actually free Or I should say, freedom exists. Remember, there's no creation of an I there. And that's what I mean when I say the unconditioned, just like that, can be realized. There is no one who realizes it. Did you get it? Did you see that? How in that linking between pleasant, liking, I, identification, or unpleasant, disliking I identification in that gap right there when the conditioning doesn't run there is a gap of unconditioning that can be experienced truly it's experienced it's realized but there's no one there experiencing it mindfulness is there but we know we're not mindfulness we can't control mindfulness It comes and goes at its own whim. So let's not get identified with that. Do you see how freedom comes from the practice of mindfulness? Do you see where the unconditioned arises moment by moment in our practice? In time, that gap is apparent more of the time the automatic conditioning of a sense of self gets weaker, more ephemeral, less substantive, and the self just becomes porous. And it's not, it's not terrorizing. It's not fear. It's not, it's not like you know, kind of disappear into oblivion or you just kind of poof, gone, or something like that. You don't get annihilated. You don't get nuked off the face of the earth. You just stop suffering. What could be better than that, right? It's a subtle teaching. It takes a very diligent attention to see the gap, to notice it, and to just with with enough frequency to actually feel the dissolution of self. But it happens. In spite of how difficult it is and how slogging your practice is and how much pain and irritation and the flies and... It is happening. And at some point, just the accumulative, the accumulation of those moments will become really apparent. And you'll see. And you really feel how free you are from a fixed sense of self. And in that, you can be anyone, any way, in any relationship. Careful to respect your commitments. And you can really be very open, undefended, totally at one with any situation that arises. This is this is where we're going with this practice, towards that experience of spacious freedom. Insight meditation, or Vipassana, is the practice of freedom. Just understanding it from this talk is not going to do it, believe me. It's actually sit on your butt, Watch it moment to moment to moment to moment until you realize it. And realizing is not thinking, it's experiencing. And that's what you're doing. Those of you who are sitting here for these six days, that's what you're doing. Accumulating that kind of understanding, slowly, slowly. Or maybe I should say you're not accumulating understanding, you're um, letting go of misunderstandings. Letting go of the misunderstanding that there's a self there that this is all happening to. And in its place comes spacious freedom. So let's sit for a minute and let the words mm-hmm. phew, settle down.